0: Hello, this is Opera Unbound, a podcast that breaks the barriers between opera singers and the audience. We will cover the process, challenges, stereotypes, and inspirations associated with opera. I'm Rachel Moss, the host, and this is my co-host,
1: Mike Heitman.
0: You can learn more about our podcast at www.patreon.com operaunbound.
1: All right, everybody, on today's podcast, since it is October... We are going to be talking about spooky scenes in opera and getting into some of the horror shows that are in opera that a lot of people really don't know about and or scenes that you don't necessarily think are spooky but in reality they actually are. <laughs> i mentioned we're going to be talking about these spooky scenes we have a list here that's got a lot of the standard shows that are pretty spooky and then actually more of these are lesser done shows that should be done more we hope that you guys get a lot of information out of this one we're really excited to talk about let's first talk about arguably the spookiest scene in opera uh, and that is from Der Freischutz, which is by Weber. And this is the Wolf's Glen scene. The Wolf's Glen scene is this really spooky and creepy scene in this show. Now, to give you a little bit of backstory on Freischutz, for those people who think that opera kind of leans one way in terms of any social or political leanings, this one is perfect for all the NRA people, right? It's about. <laughs> A marksman contest for women. I mean, it has all the makings of a redneck opera. Max and Kaspar, they're fighting over a woman and who is the daughter of Kunio. And the woman is Agata, And basically, Agata chooses Max. But Kaspar wanted her. And um, so they're having a shoot off essentially in in order to uh, figure out who gets her and it all revolves around revolve (laughs) pun intended. It revolves around these magic bullets. Okay, so there's seven magic bullets and the last one is supposed to be the kill shot. Right. And so they're divvied out. Max gets three and Cosbar gets three. And throughout the day, they shoot things. And eventually we get to the Wolf's Glen scene. And we first hear some chimes. OK, these bells and Cosbar is trying to call out Samiel, and Samiel is known as the dark huntsman now this has nothing to do with race just to be clear it's just a metaphorical of course black or dark in a lot of symbolic stuff means evil and so he's trying to call him out because Cospar has already sold his own soul. And so he's trying to get a little help from, from Samio. Now, he calls him out and he says, look, uh, I'm going to offer Max's soul in exchange so I can have three more days.
0: <laughs> he's like, I'm not even going to... I'm not going to offer my own soul. No, no, I'm going to sell this guy's
1: soul. I mean, he's just trying to get Agatha, right? I mean, right. dudes will do what they got to do, right? Now, Agatha has to be killed by Max's magic bullet. And so Samuel agrees ambiguously. And he says, so be it. By the gates of hell tomorrow, it's going to happen, right? So then Max shows up and he warns Kospar to abandon their whole thing that they're doing. This, like, marksmanship thing. But... But Samuel conjures up Agatha, seemingly drowning herself in despair. So he's like, wait, 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 what's going on? And he's like all freaking out about it. And then they start casting the bullet. Long story short, it gets real creepy. There's lots of musical stuff to symbolize things in the Glen.
0: At the beginning of the Wolf scene, we have a very uh, overused by composers. <laughs> <to> mean, <laughs> we have string tremolo to give that suspense and eeriness to the scene. And we also have the use of the winds, that, you know, the flutes and oboes and clarinets very sparsely. Almost like trying to sound like the wind through the trees, right? Mm-hmm. And then with many more romantic composers, we have the addition of brass. And here the brass is kind of used as these long building, descending brass. What? Just kind of like adding to the creepiness of the night And the excerpt we're going to play for you Is actually the chorus at the beginning You know, you get some of the orchestral bits, right? But the chorus is interesting As the, the men and the women don't sing at the same time And the men are s- describing the scene And they're all in unison And then the women are mimicking owls hooting
2: hoo-wee, hoo-wee,
0: With <laughs> the underscoring of, I believe it's flutes The flutes are da. At the same time as the women, so you really get this very big juxtaposition between the two men da, 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 and what the women are doing. It really gets you in the mood. This is this is a creepy scene. What's going to happen?
1: Wait, wait, wait. Are you really saying that it, all this stuff gets you in the mood for some shooting? Like really? <laughs> is that where we're going with no, this?
0: No, no, no. This is <laughs> in the mood for the the ritual of calling Samio, right? Oh, okay. <laughs> The shooting's later on.
1: Okay. Yeah, yeah, that's later on. Because nothing gets you in the mood like an owl. So
0: here's the first scene. Uh the choral excerpt. This is the Wolfglen scene from the 1968 film production of Karl Maria von Weber's Der Freischutz by the Hamburg State Opera.
1: For our next one we're gonna go for a story that unless you've been literally living under a rock your entire life you got to at least have heard of this story probably know it very well because you learned about it as a child and that is Hansel and Gretel. Hansel and Gretel is one of my favorite shows not only to see but also to perform in. It's It's kind of like mini Wagner. It doesn't really break too much from the actual story. Yeah, the creepy scene that we're going to talk about is obviously when the witch comes out. And so prior to this, just to give you juxtaposition, right, we have this beautiful duet between Hansel and Gretel, and it's the prayer. It's arguably one of the most beautiful duets in all of Germanic opera, in my opinion,
0: that's not romantic either, right? I'm romantic
1: is yeah. like the love scene. Good Yeah, we this isn't Zygmunt and Zyglinda. Like this isn't <laughs> a, a uh incestuous duet. This is I'm talking about the uh romantic period mm-hmm. of music. Thank you for that clarification. So uh you have this and then we open up and it's the next day because the prayer happens during the night. They're basically like freaking out because they hear these noises and all this and they pray so that they can fall asleep okay next day hear gretel singing Uh, all this stuff it's all nice and happy and guess what shows up the gingerbread house and they're like wait a minute we can eat this stuff awesome and now who lives there the witch and um, she has lots of creepy creepy lines in this thing and as per usual She uh, tries to put them in the oven. Now, just as a side note, there are many ways that this show has been done either to make it extra creepy or to make it just different. Like, for example, there's a Covent Garden version of this where you're inside the gingerbread house and there's literally hanging children because the children are turned into gingerbread. Right. So you see these you see these angel. It's the most morbid thing I've ever seen in a show like this. (laughs) I literally was dumbfounded when I saw it, but it's very effective. And then the other one is a lot of times now the witch is played by a tenor instead of a mezzo or a contralto, but dressed in drag. And so that's that's a lot of fun, too. But yeah, it's uh, this is the hocus pocus. She's. Uh, putting this spell on uh, on Hensel.
0: I won't say that it's like necessarily creepy music. I would say it's more sinister, right? Yeah. And because we are again in the early Romantic time period when it comes to music, we see a lot of use of horns. So here, rather than it being descending lines, it's all building up, right? She's starting she's starting to cast the spell and as, you know, it comes to fruition we get the horns building up to these huge Swarzando chords. And there's also some little little tidbits, is what I'll say, and they, they're ascending. So the, this, this one was interesting because it doesn't revolve around what we usually hear is all this descending lines, you know, very ominous. Mm-hmm. And the witch's music, dun, 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 dun. It, it's kind of what I would say angular. And uh her her vocal lines mm-hmm. jumps around a lot to, to add to that yeah. sinister nature.
1: Yeah, the the witch is all over the place. It's it's really you gotta have a huge range to play the witch.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. In this selection, the witch is actually a soprano.
1: Oh, okay. Yeah, I think it goes up to B flat, um, at least.
0: Mm-hmm. It does during, during the, uh, Gretchen, during that scene, mm-hmm. uh, that at the end, you do a B flat.
1: Yep. And the one thing that's brilliant about how Humperdinck does this is Hansel and Gretel figure out a way while the, cause the witch is trying to get them in the oven, right? That's her end game, but they figure out a way to trick her into getting into the oven because she, they're basically like, no, 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 no. Cause she's trying to lure them in and it's like the circular thing and they almost get in the oven and then they go back and they do this a few times and then they think, wait a minute. Oh, which, um, we're, we're really nervous. Um, can you show us how to do this? I mean, we're, we're just dumb kids. I mean, you know, that, that kind of thing. And she's like, oh, you stupid kids. Or, you know, that's basically the affect. It, all you gotta do is you just gotta do this and she gets close enough in and then they push her in. And then they have this momentous moment. And what's so cool after this is it releases all the children that are uh, gingerbread. Mm -hmm. So in, in almost every production, you have these kids all of a sudden start showing up. And there's this children's chorus that goes with it. And it's fun. And then eventually you get the parents that come on like, hey, Hansel and Gretel, where have you been? And they're all happy and it's all reunited. So this, like you mentioned, this is less ominous and and creepy like you know, fry shoots and the other stuff that we'll talk about, but it's just very sinister.
0: Yeah, Hansel and Gretel is a very, I would say, family-friendly opera over the whole. Depending on the production, obviously. True. We're gonna do a portion of the hocus pocus for you. Hope you enjoy it. This is Hocus Pocus from the 1981 Vienna Philharmonic production of Hentu und Gretel by Humperdinck. It is conducted by Georg Solti, and you will hear Sena Jurinak, the Croatian-Austrian soprano, in the role of
2: the witch. <laughs>
1: all right so now let's move on to a show that rachel and i are both very familiar with and we've talked about before for various reasons this is the epic don giovanni okay mozart one of his greatest operas they wrote most popular And this scene is the commendatore scene. Now, for those of you who aren't familiar with Giovanni, Giovanni, of course, is a serial seducer, to put it bluntly, or lightly, I should say. And he just loves women, and he thinks that he's going to be able to get away with it uh, ad finitum. But that's not really how life works. And so at the end of the show, you have Giovanni and Leporello. They're hanging out, and all of a sudden there's a statue of the Commendatore, who Giovanni kills at the beginning of the show, and the Commendatore is the father of the woman you see him seducing or raping or however you want to do the show, your slant of it, at the very, very beginning of the show. So basically, the Commendatore comes out, he's trying to defend his daughter, and Giovanni is like, all right, old man, bring it on and they start fighting, he ends up killing him. Then eventually, you have this scene where Leporello and Giovanni are in the town square, presumably, and there's a statue of the Commendatore, and they hear it as if it's speaking. And it's obviously a little bit creepy and and ominous. And then they move on, right? And then towards the end of the main last scene, Giovanni and Leporello and Giovanni wants to, like, have a bunch of people over for a party. Oh, one thing I forgot to mention is that when they hear the voice earlier, Giovanni's like, invite him to dinner. Like, let's just have him. And so now you're at this dinner scene. That's when the commendatore actually shows up. Of course, he's a a spirit at this point. He basically is trying to say, look, Giovanni, you're horrendous. Why don't you repent? Otherwise, you're going to hell. And Giovanni's like screw you, dude. I'm not repenting. Whatever. You can't do anything. You can't touch me. And you're not even real. And eventually it gets to a point where the Commendatore is like, here, you don't think I'm real? Grab my hand. And Giovanni's like, just this dude, whatever. So I'll grab his hand. <laughs> this is not real, Leporello. This is so dumb. And Leporello's freaking out because he's, I guess a scaredy cat or whatever. And Giovanni grabs his hand and realizes that it's more than just his imagination. His, the hand is ice cold. The Commendatore tries again to get Giovanni to repent. He refuses, refuses, refuses. And then all the spirits come and take him to hell. That was the original end of Giovanni. um, And how, uh, when I adapted it, that's how I ended it too. Uh, But actually later, I can't remember who told Mozart that he needed to change it. There was some Probably a king or whatever, because that's just how it was back then. So then he added a post-lude because they wanted it to have a moral at the end. So you have all of the other main characters come out and basically do this post about how they feel about Giovanni.
0: So musically, this scene with the commendatory begins with um, mm-hmm. another technique that's often used by composers, a diminished chord.
2: Mm-hmm. Right? <laughs>
1: yeah it's the chord uh, one of my music theory teachers told me it's always the chord that sounds like the train is about to hit the car
2: Mm -hmm. and it's
1: the the horn of the train yeah so
0: um and then it's followed by this kind of eerie sea of strings that are sparse but yet uh slowly undulating it's such a cool combination with what they usually choose is a very very booming bass voice and in the selection we have um i found a snippet of morris robinson great uh, american bass singing this it's just so fantastic again with this scene we also have this descending bass lines um, both in the music, but also in the actual vocal line of uh, commendatore, mm-hmm. you'll have this more undulating orchestra movement, and then when whenever the commendatore is being very commanding, you'll get a very thunder-like explosion out of out of the orchestra. And as you men- mentioned, with the ending of this scene, with Don Giovanni being dragged off to hell. Um, you get that sort of uh, illusion of a fire and, and the flames licking through the strings in particular. It's a, it's a very, very cool effect that Mozart was able to create in the orchestration of this scene. I, I guess if you were a kid, which I don't know if a kid should watch this opera, but it would seem rather rather creepy, this yeah. scene. But it does have elements that make it very spooky. And we are talking about a spirit coming back from the dead, To um, exact his revenge
1: One thing I I thought of As you were um, talking I was thinking about how this sounds In my head because I've just heard it so many times One thing that's really cool About what Mozart did Both with the Commendatore And the spirits Is you'll notice that there really isn't A lot of movement In terms of the intervals It's not like it's all one note But like there isn't a lot Usually the Commendatore will be like like, it's not moving. Yep.
0: It's it's very stepwise motion.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Which means it's very steady and very calm. He's just basically like, look, mm-hmm. Giovanni, this is your chance. He's not, look, Giovanni, this is your chance. Do it now, now. Whereas, um, yes. Giovanni is kind of in the middle and then Leporello's like freaking out. He's, so it's very... Uh, interesting how the emotions are being brought out of the various characters by Mozart. The other thing too that I I find hysterical, and I think we I think uh, President Trump mentioned it in that uh, video or the the interview that you did. There's a version of this that literally I don't know if it's the lighting or the actual makeup, but it looks like the Commendatore is like blue, like the Blue Man Group. I think it's Kurt Mole is the is the base. It's just so, I, yeah, so I think ridiculous. You're right. yeah. I'm like, this is not what you expect a, a spirit to look like. I mean, it's a, when you hear the guy open his mouth, you're like, okay, that's freaky. But <laughs> it's just the dichotomy between what you're kind of expecting it to be and, and not, you know. So anyway.
0: This selection comes from the 2011 Florida Grand Opera production of Don Giovanni. In the role of Commendatore, you will hear bass Morris Robinson. Don Giovanni is sung by David Pittsinger, and Leporello is Tom Corbile. the screw by britain Britain is very interesting music in that it's um it kind of goes back and forth between being atonal and tonal um and it makes it very challenging as a performer to learn his music a lot of the time uh you'll hear you'll hear musicians talk about how you really have to learn the language of britain when it comes to performing his music
1: he's one of those composers that even when he's not trying to be creepy it can come off as creepy (laughs) I mean, I don't, I honestly don't know Albert Herring that well, which is his, I think, only comedic opera. But every other thing that I've heard, uh, I've done excerpts from The Rape of Lucretia. You, of course, have done the whole show of Rape of Lucretia. And when I've heard excerpts from The Turn of the Screw, not the one that we're going to talk about, but there's the the tenor aria about Miles. I mean, Miles is a Mm -hmm. kid and he's like trying to seduce him or whatnot, talking about him. It's very pedophilic yeah yeah it's just he's brilliant at being creepy you know so if that's that's your thing so and the the thing that's interesting about this scene is i see it as because this is the governess and mm-hmm. it's the it's almost like when you see in a horror movie and the call is coming from inside the house and
0: yeah exactly yeah because this is a ghost story right
1: yeah yeah and all of a sudden they see the ghost in the room this is how it all goes down and so when he uses the the dissonance and all the all the different techniques it's very very effective and i mean honestly a lot of the techniques that the the composers in the 20th century and the 21st century they're not that different than what you actually hear in real horror movies in the soundtracks
0: i mean they had to get it
1: Somewhere, right? Yeah, and they just copy from the best, the classical composers. So wait, does that make all these horror film people posers? I don't know. (laughs) They're not cum-posers, composers; they are just posers. I don't know. I digress.
0: Okay, should we give a little bit of a synopsis of of the opera and the
1: scene? So, at the beginning of the show, they are singing about this young governess who cared for the the kids at the Bly house, which is where this takes place which is this English countryside house. This governess that they're talking about, of course, is Miss Jessel. Now, she had been hired by by the uncle of the kids uh, to be the guardian because he was too too busy with life. He lived in London, had his own things going on, but he has these two kids that he's got to take care of. And so he gets a, a governess to do that. So after he hired her, though, he he gave her three stipulations, which is, don't write to me, okay? Which is kind of a, a dick move. <laughs> like, hey, I don't want to know about these kids, okay? Just do your job. I'll send you money. I don't want to hear about it. Not to a- He also said, don't ask about the history of the Bly house. Sounds like a plot line in almost every single horror movie. And then also, hey, while you're out there, can you just, like, not abandon them? Like, make sure you keep tabs on them. Despite the fact it might get freaky, it might, uh get scary i need you to take care of them and as long as you do those three things we're good to go so that's the premise of the opera and then as it goes along eventually we get to the scene which is the one that we're going to show you so like we mentioned this is the call from in the house scene the governess and everybody they they come back uh home from church And so the governess goes up into the the kids' school room, room, uh, and she sees the ghost of Miss Jessel at her desk. And (laughs) Miss Jessel is telling her about her fate and how she's, you know, not doing so great uh, in the afterlife and how she's suffering and all that. The governess, you know, comes to talk to her, and then Miss Jessel goes away. So this makes the governess decide to stay at the house instead of leave. And she writes to the children's uncle because she needs to talk to him now about everything that's going on. So
0: in this scene, like we said, it's it's a ghost story. We have the governess and Mrs. Jessel, the uh, the ghost of the former governess. And uh, we have this juxtaposition between kind of two tonalities, which is something that Britain does a lot. The ghost is... It sounds very atonal and uh it within this opera Britain uses a twelve tone technique, which is building of a scale based on twelve different tones, um, that aren't necessarily in a regular stepwise motion. How I mean it's it's unnerving. The ghost the ghost nerving is music is very unnerving. Mm-hmm. The governess, her music is rather tonal sounding. There's a lot of dissonance in the orchestra, um, but the orchestra is very sparse. You just have a few strings playing, so it's not a whole lot of of, uh, orchestration going on underneath them, which I think kind of leads further to this eeriness of the scene. Mm -hmm. This eerie selection is from the 2011 Leidenborn Opera production of Turn of the Screw by Britton. You will hear the London Philharmonic Orchestra and Mia Persons is the governess and Mrs. Jessel is sung by Giselle Allen. Mm
1: For our next one, we go to another story that a lot of people know, and that is Macbeth. Because lots of people know it, we're not going to get into the storyline and all of that stuff, but the, the scene we want to do is at the beginning of the show. It's the witches' scene, and it sets up a lot of things. And yeah, it's by Verity, so obviously it's going to be great music. Verity is one of the greatest composers ever, and it's got that energy. Like once you hear it, if you know Verity's music at all, you're like, yep. That's that's old Joe Green right there. So what's going on in this scene? Like
0: we said, it's a witches scene, so we have a very storm like setup from the orchestra setting up the double bubble boil and trouble of the witches, right? <laughs> <laughs>
2: Yep, <laughs> <laughs>
0: we've uh, we've got like a lot of sequences, and this one you get both ascending and descending lines. Uh, you have more descending windings than ascending, but you have these large builds to explosive, uh, again thunderous like moments, and then it goes to very subito. This is I I think this is just another example of how great of a composer Verdi is, especially with with choruses. He wrote some of the best choruses. There oh, are totally. music does a fantastic job of exhibiting the spell-like incantations in the vocal lines of the witches' chorus. This selection is from Teatro alla Scala's 2000 to 2003 production of Macbeth. It is conducted by Riccardo Muti, and you will hear the chorus sing "Che di dite su" the witches' chorus. <laughs>
2: Thank you.
1: opera in the grand scheme of things. It premiered in the 60s at the New York City Opera. This is the Lizzie Borden Opera. Now, for those of you not familiar with Lizzie Borden, because you're not into all of the crime history of Massachusetts in the late 1800s, you probably may not know about this. And this takes place in Fall River, Massachusetts. And what ends up happening is we have Lizzie Borden, who is the daughter of Andrew Borden, and this is now his second wife, Abby Borden. And so, this basically is a story about a daughter who can't get what she wants, and so she takes matters into her own hands to get what she wants. What she wants is to marry this guy, Jason McFarlane. And her dad is like, Uh, no, if any person in this family is going to marry Jason. It's not going to be you. It's going to be your sister. And so she, of course, doesn't like that. And towards the end of the opera, which is the scene that we'll have you guys start looking at, she's sitting in a room just rocking back and forth with her mom's wedding dress on. And she's fantasizing that Jason would be with her. Then eventually... (laughs) When she realizes that it's never going to happen with Jason. She's mad, of course, at her dad and Abby. And she sees this axe on the wall. And then she goes into Abby's bedroom. Next thing we see is a bunch of blood on a wedding gown. Uh, You can imagine what's going on there. And then Andrew comes in and sees her chopping up Abby. And tries to stop it. And, of course, he gets hacked to death, too. So it's, you know, uh, this is why families need therapy. Um, (laughs) And uh, to work out these problems instead of using axes. That's the, the end of the main part of the opera. Now, of course, it has an epilogue. Even though Lizzie was acquitted of the charges, she still was not accepted by her community. The the opening of the opera actually starts with her at a church choir rehearsal. The church and the people in the town never really recognized her as a person they ever want to be around and she lived out the rest of her life in that house in solitude. I, I guess the moral of the story is choices have consequences.
0: It's like the uh, American... Uh... Lucia Di Lamamor.
1: Ah, well, there you go.
0: (laughs) I mean, because she basically is having a, a mad scene, right? Yeah. In this production, you see her, like we said, she's got the wedding dress of her mother on and she's in a rocking chair. This song that she sings, Kill. Time, kill, time sounds like uh, like a kid's song, yeah, like ring around the rosy pocket full of posies, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And that has its own level of creepiness to build on top of that, we have a lot of dissonance in the strings. And we have this loping Mm bass. Kind of like if you think about uh, Peter and the Wolf.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. The
0: loping of the wolf thematic sound that you get. You get the same thing here, yeah. And she's singing this kind of nursery rhyme song. Talks about, like, the blood red color of the leaves and the decomposing and all those sorts of things before she goes and commits murder so it's uh, a, definitely a, a spooky scene in this entire opera of madness totally this is a selection from New York City Opera's 1999 production of Lizzie Borden you will hear Phyllis Pancella, the mezzo soprano singing Lizzie Borden
2: Kill time Kill time Father's away hide in a mound on un-
1: I mean, we can't have a Halloween or spooky-themed playlist without talking about vampires. Also, Rachel and I live in western Washington, which is not too far from Forks, which, of course, everyone's favorite early 2000s, you know, teen hit Twilight series. They filmed it, and it takes place. And so this show is called Der Vampir. Yes, you guessed it. Even though you don't know German, it's The vampire. (laughs) Um... Good on you. And so it's a show about a vampire. And the vampire's name is Lord Rootven. And this scene comes from the beginning of the show. And he's laying out basically what he's got to do that day. Which is, in order for him to not die, he's got to kill three people. (laughs) Three women. A year. You know, it it almost has a little bit of a a Mikado tie to it, right? Because Coco... Mm -hmm. He's got to behead enough people to keep his job. Um, mm. <laughs> and so it's kind of the same thing. And the, the aria we're going to have you listen to is called Ha lust which, which is translated to Ah, What Pleasure. And so he's talking about the pleasure of getting blood and uh, doing the vampire thing i don't know the more i read this text i'm just going to give you this is one of the um the verses from it the more it just makes me think of the count on uh sesame street but anyway it says how what pleasure with loving caress with lascivious courage the sweetest blood like sap of the roses the red purple lips ha, ah, ah. like that's just
2: it's <laughs>
1: uh, <laughs> odulating to sip and when the burning things, uh, burning thirst is quenched, when the blood oozes from the heart, one, two, three, when the gro- <laughs> they groan and falter, ha! What a lot, ha ha! Height. It's a really great aria. The one thing I do wish about this piece is that there was it was more easily available score-wise. I've I've wanted to to learn this aria because I've heard it like in recordings, but finding a score isn't always the easiest thing. But that's a Completely unrelated. And side note,
0: yeah, this aria is uh, both interesting in two ways because, uh, yes, you still have that spiraling chromaticism and descending scales to evoke the evil, sinister nature of the character. But because he's kind of reveling in, you know, taking the blood of his sacrifices, it also has this characteristic romantic quality to it, as if he's singing a love aria, right? Mm-hmm. Which. It's very funny. Like, I know it's not supposed yeah. to be funny, but we find it funny as musicians, so.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, he he loves to suck the blood. He, <laughs> he <laughs> you know, he's got to lure the women in a little bit. Maybe he's got to right. fake loving them. You know, right. he obviously loves his job. He's not like, oh, man, I got to go out and suck some blood today. Ugh. You know, he's not with that. So it's, yeah, I, I agree, though. There's a lot of musical humor that the musicians find deeply satisfying in dark music like this, which we'll talk about late later when we briefly, you know, do like Sweeney or something like that.
0: Yeah, so take a listen and uh, tell us what you think of this uh, sinister art. Uh... From the 2013 recording of Marshner's Der vampire by the Cologne Radio Chorus and Orchestra, we will hear... Franz Havlata sing Lord Ruthven.
2: When <Sings> the
1: Going along with when you have a a Halloween-themed list without a vampire, I suppose another one that you can't have without it is the devil, right? So this comes from the Boito Mephistopheles, which has a lot of similarities to the Gunur Faust. And Mephistopheles is, of course... The devil, the devil. Satan. And um, this is towards the beginning of the show. And he's just basically giving a synopsis of who he is, what he's all about. And the thing that I find interesting about this in some of the lines is that he says that I laugh and I snarl with this monosyllable no it goes into that whole idea that if you say a word with different inflections it means one thing so Mm -hmm. then he'll say like i destroy i attempt i roar i hiss no so all those things can be within that no you know, we have different names for certain arias. Like, there's multiple Willow songs, right? There's one mm-hmm. from the Ballad of Baby Doe. There's one in Otello. There's the Catalog Aria, which is Leporello's aria, talking about how many women Giovanni's been with. This one is called the Whistling Aria. Yeah. He'll, like, sing a verse and a chorus, and then he has this whistling thing in the interlude. It's going... And then you hear this... <laughs> But it doesn't. That sounded more like a, (laughs) like an ambulance. But it's like an actual whistle that they use in the orchestra. So it's the the evil wind, and like it's really 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 cool. And the excerpt that we have is uh, Sam Raimi, who is the epitome of the perfect voice to play the devil. He literally has a album called A Date with the Devil, where he sings Lucifer's music. Um, and, and, uh, and, uh, yeah, it's a really great album, actually.
0: This show doesn't get done very often, and a lot of it actually has to do with finding a singer who can sing this role. Um,
1: yeah.
0: It's not an easy role to sing, and it takes a, a voice like Sam Raimi or someone who is, you know, uh, bass baritone that, that has both ends of the range, though. Yeah. It's another one of those that takes a wide range. It's very, very hard technical music. Um, and in this aria, like you said, at, it- it has a lot of sinister things. Uh, it has this talking about laughing, which I find interesting that, that the character itself doesn't do more laughing in its singing like mm-hmm. he does in the Gounod version.
1: Oh, yeah. And the serenade and all that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: But you do hear, you hear it in the orchestra instead, this mimicking of laughter. And again, we have descending low notes, but it's a, it's a very fast paced aria too. Mm-hmm.
1: And the whistling,
0: I actually thought Sam Raimi was whistling.
1: Well, I mean, maybe he is, but you would think with how much noise is coming out of the orchestra, like how loud is that actually going to be if it's in a big hall? But maybe I'm wrong. I mean,
0: it sounds like the, you know, like the the whistle that like cowboys do?
1: Oh, yeah.
0: That's what it sounds like to me. And knowing that Sam Raimi is from my great state of Kansas. Yes, he is. I actually know how to do it.
1: Yeah. (laughs) It's one of those things that you, those like special skills part of your resume, right?
0: (laughs) Can whistle really loud.
1: Really loud. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) I'm trying to think. I used to have some funny things on my resume, but I can't like the the extra stuff. Oh, I used to put that I'm a former prison guard, which is true. Um, Mm -hmm. So I'm like, if you have any jailer ones, I don't have to go very far for the inspiration. But anyway. From the
0: 1989 San Francisco opera production of Mephistophele by Boito. We will hear Samuel Raimi as none other than the devil, Mephistophele. Okay. <laughs>
1: one we're going to talk about is a torture chamber um and that is from bartok's bluebeard's castle this show is not done very often but it's a great show it's only two characters not very long but it's in hungarian
0: three i think there's actually an, uh, a character who maybe it's just a spoken part but
1: yeah it's two main characters let me put it that way <laughs> so it's in bluebeard's castle logically, and it's in this huge dark hall and in front of it is in front of uh Judith and Bluebeard are seven doors and so basically each scene is a door. The first door is the torture chamber and naturally it's got blood everywhere. What's what's interesting is Judith, you know, when you see a torture chamber, I think the natural reaction would be to be like, <gasps> what the But then after a while she's like, Hmm, that's kinda interesting. And uh, she's all uh, intrigued about it.
0: Doesn't have a song uh, strong sense for red flags,
1: huh? Yeah, no, she she, she's kind of lacking that part of the frontal cortex. Um, (laughs) But you know that happens with people, you know. And the second door is it's got a bunch of weapons in it and you know each door has its own various thing but the music is very dissonant and it just really really dramatizes and describes the scenes very very well bartok is in my opinion one of those people that once you get him, it makes so much more sense and it's really enjoyable. But if you're first listening to it, it's like, what is this? Like, what is going on? Can,
0: can you uh, explain to the audience why there are seven doors and why, why they have to go through all of them?
1: Like I mentioned, we got all these doors, right? It's not the price is right, for, first of all. Or maybe it is. <laughs> Let me tell you what happens. So we have these seven doors. You know, it's, it's a different thing. Not necessarily a prize, but more information about Bluebeard and then when door number seven opens guess who we find three of Bluebeard's wives still alive and so Judith is there to save them and at this point Bluebeard obviously realizes that he's in the wrong and he starts trying to apologize and praise Judith for figuring all this out he obviously feels bad about everything he's done um sure Sure, he does. Sure. And uh, then eventually, uh, Judith and the wives escape, and all the doors close, which leaves Bluebeard in darkness to deal with all the things that he did. So, long story short, dudes, make sure you do the right thing because these women are very smart, and they will haunt you and figure you out, take you out at the knees, emotionally. (laughs) So... Don't have torture chambers, just treat people right. That's all I'm saying.
0: Yeah, definitely. Okay, so like we've said, this is the first door. It reveals the torture chamber. And I think of this whole opera as being like a psychological thriller, mm-hmm. right? Because the mystery and the suspense of what is behind the next door is the whole point of this opera, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like we said, behind the first door is the torture chamber, and it's also referred to as like the red room because everything is covered in blood. And we have an extreme amount of polytonal music through. Out the whole opera but you definitely see it exhibited in this first scene and there's like the chromatic undulations in the strings Judith, a lot of her lines are like these large descending leaps which yes she came to save the wives but like you know she's gotta live through this whole situation first so she's definitely going through some shock mm-hmm. and horror uh, probably in this first room and there's a lot of things in the orchestra that play to this anxiety that I th- is uh, exhibiting what she feels in this scene. From the 1981 film production of Bartok's Bluebeard's Castle, we will hear the London Philharmonic Orchestra, conducted by Georg Solti, and Sylvia Sass as Judith, and Kolos Kovats as Bluebeard. <laughs>
1: So for our next one.
0: Our final one.
1: The final one, yeah. Our final one. This We actually have one that's a French opera. And this is Debussy's La Chute de la Maison Usher*, or Usher.
0: <laughs> which is incomplete. It's an
2: incomplete opera.
1: Yeah, it's an incomplete opera. This is based on Edgar Allan Poe's uh, The Fall of the House of Usher, which, as we all know, Edgar Allan Poe always wrote the most light-hearted material. So this naturally falls into the darkness. It's a sequel to Peleos and Mélaison, and it, this scene that you're going to look at is from the beginning of the opera. Um, but just to give you a little bit of a synopsis of what's going on, we have Roderick Usher, and he is the um, last dude in his family to survive, and he's living in this ancestral estate by himself with his sister Madeline. Madeline has a disease that is un is un—they're unable to find a cure for it. Or she just doesn't want to find a cure for it. And so Roderick is, you know, they're living as recluses really. But he begs a friend to come in and visit Madeline. And after the friend shows up, Madeline dies. And she's buried in a vault beneath the house. Okay, well, fast forward towards the end of the opera well turns out that she was actually buried alive and she's crawled out of the vault to find roderick and then this becomes very uh, obviously scary because here i thought you were dead but you're not i saw you go into the vault we buried you but you came out that's the basic overview of of the we show ca- we
0: call that spite
1: yeah yeah <laughs> like oh so you think you can bury me you think you can like lock me in this vault what up now
0: <laughs> in this scene i think the things that are very distinct about how this was orchestrated and composed we have the use of a slow steady drum beat and um, very stepwise modal music for the vocal wine and i don't know if it's in the scene, or if it's like the end of the scene into the next scene, there's um, this use of the harp combined with dissonant horns, which I thought was a really cool combination. Mm-hmm. But this, again, has a lot of dissonance and suspensions and sparse strings to give that eerie, creepy, house feel.
1: Yeah, when when composers do this, it's almost as if they're trying to say, you know what, we're going to just let you sit in this for a little bit when it's sparse like that and then just give you little things instead of composers are giving us information all the time right but sometimes it's the lack of information that makes it actually worse
0: right and where where your imagination as a
1: human goes right? yeah yeah exactly
0: our final selection comes from a 2013 recording of Debussy's La Chute de la Maison Houcher recorded by the gothican Symphony Orchestra conducted by Christoph Müller, featuring William Daisley as Roderick Usher. Enjoyed our spooky list, we do have some bonus playlists that we will have linked. And um, just to let you know some of the things that are on there. We're going to share a selection from The Shining. Bet you didn't know that was an opera.
2: Mm-hmm. The
0: Storm Scene from Rigoletto by Verdi. Couldn't do a list like this without having um, Sweeney Todd on there. Or really, uh, the Mad Scene from Lucia. Mm-hmm. This isn't necessarily... A spooky thing as in subject, but um, I think that it just because it's so atonal is kind of creepy in its own way, and that's um, Pierre Lunaire, and I have a actually an English version of The Sick Moon oh, nice. version of it. Um, definitely take a listen to that. Also thought we should include a selection from Ghosts of Versailles, so we will be sharing They're Always With Me. And then... A selection from Elektra, Wotzick, The Flying Dutchman, and here's a real kicker: I'm going to share a recording of me singing Ulrika's aria from Un ballo in Mascara.
1: And if we can find it, we we there's actually a zombie opera. We'll see if there's excerpts online, but that's yeah. also a thing too.
0: We compiled these lists to give you something to listen to as we lead up to All Hallows Eve.
1: Dun, dun, dun.
0: we hope you enjoyed and uh, we'll see you next time bye thanks for listening to this podcast episode we hope you enjoyed it we'd love to hear your thoughts and requests so leave us a comment below for more information about the podcast or for extras check out our patreon page www.patreon.com slash opera unbound you can help support the creation of this and much more content for as little as three dollars a month like and subscribe to our channel and also follow us on instagram at opera unbound to stay updated
2: ciao